a change is going to come, sayings of playing for change, Ben. We here at Solutions of Violence and our guest today, Corey Schull, also believe a change is going to come. Like the changes that is going to come for students who attend schools in the Louisville Jefferson County Public School System. Welcome to Solutions of Violence, friends. You are listening to Forward Radio WFMP 106.5 FM. We're delighted you could join us today as we talk with our guest, Jefferson County Public School Board Member Corey Schull. I'm Jim Johnson here with Jamie McMillan. We are your hosts for Solutions of Balance, a broadcast program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do this by emailing us at solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Jefferson County Public School Board member Corey Shaw. Corey, welcome to Solutions to Violence. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It is my delight to be here uh, with you this day and to talk about Jefferson County Public Schools, which is a passion of mine. And I'm always excited to share about cool things that our children are doing and the progressive things that our district is attempting to do uh, to ensure that every child in Louisville has access to a quality public education. Well, we're glad to have you. I want to give a little bio uh, before we get started for our, our listeners. Corey is a lifetime champion of public education and his record of community service underscores his advocacy for a strong, diverse, progressive JCPS system. He is the father of Zoe and Harrison. Corey has served on the JPS facilities committee and the behavioral support alternate task force. He has participated in flash dads and mentors, JCPS middle school boys. For the past eight years, Corey created and led the Teen Summit Enrichment Program, which offers a mix of academic instruction and cultural enrichment. He also serves as coordinator of an uh, annual college tour, giving high school students the opportunity to visit college campuses and personally connect with counselors, students, and staff. Corey holds degrees from Fisk University and Louisville Presbyterian Seminary and is a doctoral candidate at Colgate Rochester Crozer Divinity School. He is a pastor of Burnett Avenue Baptist Church in Fern Creek. Welcome again, Corey. Thank you. uh, Let me get to this one question. Uh, In 2020, Raphael Warnock, a senior pastor of the Ebenezer River Baptist Church in Atlanta, uh, was a candidate uh, in a runoff election, a Senate election uh, with a fellow named Kelly, uh, or a candidate named Kelly Loeffler, Republican candidate. The winner of the race would decide the, the balance of power in the in US Senate. So millions of dollars in national attention was directed at that uh, Georgia runoff election. What's interesting is uh, all the, the critics could uh, level against Warnock pulled from two decades of sermons as a, as a pastor from his uh, 2013 book and some other articles that he, he published. Uh, back as far as 2000, 2008, where he identified black uh, prophetic tradition that challenges 
governmental policies, refusing to bow uncritically to American colonialism and oppression as a lens that had been used by Warnock and many others who have found the strength to stand against destructive forces of American empire. What, what is this, uh, why is this important uh, in American politics and, and more importantly in the lives of black Americans? Why is this issue and incident? Well, I think this issue is, um, is very important because it brings attention to the fact that there are a variety of perspectives from which uh, persons of different political persuasions come to the practice of American democracy with. What Raphael Warnock presented uh, was the black prophetic tradition that dared to speak truth uh, to power, dared to bring loving critique to American uh, institutions and American democracy. And it has often been that democratic tradition that has anchored American life and uh, in many ways has ensured that there was a moral voice that spoke for the good of all citizens and not just a select few. We know that um, since the founding of the United States of America, there has often been an emphasis, there has always been an emphasis on those who first were wealthy. Uh, so when the Declaration of Independence um, was written, when the Constitution was written, uh, the rights were first given to land-owning males. You, you had to be wealthy and you had to be male to have rights. And then as race was intertwined to that whole mix, we, um, and gender, we saw that there were many people who were left out, poor people were left out, uh, black people were left out, women were left out, um, immigrants were left out. And so really in the project of American democracy, there has been the constant nudging toward inclusivity, and the embracing of all of the American citizenry. And so I think that's what Raphael Warnock represented. That's the tradition from which he comes from. Uh, of course, he represents the black prophetic tradition, uh, but the black prophetic tradition is in relation with other uh, prophetic traditions and liberate, liberative um, streams of thought, uh, such as, um, uh, so, such as uh, Walter Rauschenbusch, uh, who uh, was really the the framer of the social gospel movement. Uh, he was a white gentleman, uh, but yet he was from uh, a prophetic tradition. And then we had people like William Sloan Coffin, uh, who served as pastor of the Riverside Church, who also was a part of a prophetic tradition. And all of those prophetic traditions are in conversation. And uh, they have really been a credit to American society as America has become a more inclusive place, is ever becoming a more inclusive place because you have voices like Raphael Warnock who speak out of a prophetic tradition that calls this nation to live up to its potential. And why was that election, who won that election and, and why was it important? 
Raphael Warnock won the election. Uh, it was it was important that he won the election because, I mean, in my view, that uh, campaign was really um, a race between pro people and uh, pro the interest of a, a wealthy minority of people who really didn't care about the masses uh, of people. Of course, that election um, upset the balance of power in um, in in the United States Senate, and uh, really has been helpful uh, throughout the pandemic and and up until this point to kind of ensure that uh, some progressive policies have made it through, and that um, President Biden's agenda has been able uh, to be encoded into into law. Yeah. Well, along the same line, now you write about a sermonic message given by Reverend Jeremiah Wright sometime before his retirement in 2008. Uh, it uh, rang some bells for some folks. <laughs> okay, we're gonna hang on a sec. You might want to start that over, King. <laughs> Okay, I'll start. Uh, okay, uh, you write uh, about a sermonic message given by the Reverend Jeremiah Wright sometime before his retirement in 2008. That rang some bells with some uh, with some folks with some conservatives. You wrote about this in the Courier Journal opinion piece uh, titled "Conservatives Can't Get Jeremiah Wright's Words Out of Their Heads." because his words accomplished what the words of the prophets are meant to do. You say Wright's words spoke to American reality in such a stark manner that even those who unilaterally rejected his analysis cannot unhear it, and that is why he continues to reemerge in the American political drama. You also write until conservatives authentically and sincerely explore the perspectives of those who have been marginalized and brutalized by the American empire, they will never be able to get Jeremiah Wright out of their heads. Why can't get Jeremiah Wright out of their heads? Well, I think they can't because we continue to live into the critique that uh, Dr. Wright uh, levied on American empire. So when you listen to that sermon in whole, it's really a critique of, it's it's a critique of, um, it's a critique of American imperialism, it's a critique of American empire, it's a critique of, America, of American militarism, uh, it's a critique of American racism. And when you listen to, Wright's uh, words, you understand that he is not coming from a place where he is desiring or wishing the destruction of America. He comes, uh, he, he, he uses those words and he applies those words in a loving way to challenge America to really stand in the mirror, the mirror and to reconsider 
how our activities, how our spirit of global domination, how the ways that we have allowed our political system to grind some people under has turned out to be destructive to the fabric of the nation that we hold so dear. So I think his message is important. I think uh, we all know in our hearts, when you really take his message at face value, when you really listen to it authentically, we know in our hearts that many of the things that America has, um, has spent time and money to do has not served to progress the interest of most of the citizens in this nation. For instance, um, when you look at all of the wars and the conflicts that America has waded into over the past 75 years, all of those conflicts were not necessary. All of those wars um, did nothing to progress many times the interest of this nation or of its citizens. I was looking at a documentary about Lyndon Baines Johnson and how he was engaged in extraordinarily meaningful work uh, during the 1960s as it related to race and as it related to poverty, to really uprooting race and poverty in such a way that all citizens of the U.S. would be able to flourish. And in the middle of the good work that he was doing, here comes uh, the conflict in Vietnam. And at first, LBJ was resistant to uh, dragging America into another conflict, into that war. He did not see it as a winnable war. He did not see uh, a, a positive outcome. But because there is um, there is a sense that America is the police of the world, uh, those around him um, ended up convincing him that America had to engage in that in that war, and we see uh, the outcome of it. And unfortunately, I don't know that we have learned LBJ's lesson, and uh, we continue to find ourselves um, prioritizing militarism and deprioritizing poverty in a way that is really ravaging our nation and is causing it to be a nation of either haves or have-nots. And what will it take? What will it take to get that uh, message across? I think one, it takes, um, it takes a willingness for more people to occupy the middle ground. Our nation is so divided along ideological lines that uh, I don't know that we really are having honest conversations about what's good for American citizens. We're not having those conversations. We're not having conversations around facts. We're not having conversations around figures. We're having conversations. We're shouting at each other from ideological vantage points. Uh, so I really think that we, we must lay down some of our ideological stances and really take a cold hard look at what America has become, who America, um, how, who are our politics serving, uh, how our policies and so forth uh, in effect having an impact on ordinary citizens. And let's ask ourselves, where's the common ground 
and let's try to build on that. I think there are more, there is more common ground uh, than there is not. I, th I think uh, most citizens in the U.S. right now are being impacted by inflation. That's something that we can all get around, and I think uh, that we can we can really find solutions that we all can live with that will benefit us all, as opposed to holding on to these tribalistic viewpoints that do nothing but further divide us. Okay. You have been a participant in various, let's, let's get back to JCPS schools here. You've been a participant in various JCPS school board programs and are now, a, uh, and are now a JCPS board member. One of the dominant issues for the board and the community has been guns in schools. You have noted in the published statement, quote, school shootings over the last 25 years have rightly intensified the desire to improve school safety, end quote. Um, we know this is to be true uh, uh, in school systems around the world, around the country, actually. And this opinion piece, um, it was published in the Career Journal, July 24, 2019. Uh, you also write, quote, uh, predictably, the search for answers has often been informed by opinion and politics more than hard evidence, end quote. Opinions, of course, uh, no, are not, uh, well, let me say that again. Opinions, we, of course, know are not always supported by data. The issues of school safety is not immune to opinions based on uh, no proof of valid information. When politics and opinions are not supported by uh, reliable data enter the picture, they seem to at times worsen the possibility of agreement. So for example, the uh, variability, the, the viability of wearing COVID protection mask in school environment as opposed to the demands for constitutional freedom to have not to wear a mask. This can be particularly true when it comes to the resolution of the increased gun violence we're seeing in Jefferson County Public Schools this year. So according to the data from JCBS from August 16, 2017 to February 7, 2022, there have been at least 46 guns found in the district's 167 schools. So far, the 2020-21-22 school year, at least 15 guns have been found in JCPS schools. At this time, at the time of this report, there were still about four months left of the school year. So promote the structures, some promote the structures, well, some promote the structures of extended isolation and depression caused by the COVID pandemic as a cause of violence in our school. Some say the proliferation of guns. Those are causes supported by data from a variety of sources. Some promote opinions not necessarily supported by data. Others, through their own experience, who can still be valid. Um, when politics and opinions become a valid consideration, in decision-making about improving school safety. 
when should, let me say that again, when should politics and opinions be a valid consideration in decision-making about improving school safety? What are some solutions that you see for the crisis of gun violence in schools among kids? I don't think politics or opinion have anything, any place um, in conversations concerning student school safety. Um, when it comes to me keeping my kids safe, my politics don't matter, my opinions don't matter, and no one else's politics or opinions matter. When we talk about school safety, we must start that conversation with community safety. Where are children getting guns from? Why do they have access to these weapons? Why are they bringing these weapons to school? Why are they bringing weapons to school and not using them? How can we partner with the community at large to ensure that our school buildings are safe? I think those questions are important starting points because they are revelatory. When you talk about students bringing guns to school, it is a terrible note that there are students who bring guns to school. That is a, that's terrible. Nobody wants kids bringing guns to school. But I've got to ask a question. Why are they bringing guns to school? You have noted how many guns have been found in Jefferson County Public Schools. Yet, I think it's noteworthy that these guns do not come to schools. Uh, for people to do harm to their students, to their to their peers, or to teachers. These guns are finding their way into public school buildings because many of these kids are terrified on the way to school and on the way from school because they live in communities where they are terrorized. They're not certain they're going to get home from the bus stop in one piece. They're not, they're not, they don't know that they can stand at the bus stop without being assaulted. And so they carry weapons in order to get to school and get from school safely. That's a community problem. When we ask the question, where are these guns coming from? Where are they getting these guns from? They're not getting them from the school building, they're bringing them from home, from the community. There are places outside of JCPS buildings where they are getting a hold to these weapons. Why? I hear um, Republicans in Frankfurt talk about the Second Amendment. They passed a bill that rescinded um, the concealed carry laws, and I think now you don't even need to take any classes or anything to carry a gun. They, they are gun happy, yet they talk about kids having guns in JCPS. The same people want police in every school because of guns in schools. But these same individuals are passing laws that makes it easier to get their hands on guns. I'm not saying us have gun buybacks every weekend in, in Louisville. There, is no, there are no efforts afoot to get these guns off of the street. We're not running commercials telling gun owners to keep your guns out of your 
out of your cars, uh, to don't leave your gun on your passenger side seat, don't leave your gun in your glove compartment. We're not having those type of conversations. We're having these very bifurcated conversations. On one hand, let everybody carry a pistol. On the other hand, let's put a police officer in every school because kids are bringing guns to school. And I just don't believe that we can have it both ways. We have to have some common sense approaches to uh, gun legislation. And this has to be a, a community initiative. Everybody has to come to the table around this because kids are not getting guns out of thin air and they're bringing guns, they're carrying guns for a reason. And until we deal with those issues, I think we're gonna to continue to see the issues as it relates to school safety that we are, are currently seeing. I'm also concerned too, let me add this, that America does not seem interested in solving issues of gun violence in schools. Sandy Hook didn't inspire us to do it. Columbine didn't inspire us to do it. All of the various school shootings that happened yearly have not inspired um, the American political class to do anything as it relates to to gun violence in schools. That's endemic to the American political system, which I think is, is a disease uh, where we would sacrifice our children on the altar of the finances uh, emanate, that, that, that emanate from the NRA, uh, which, which is a crisis in my perspective, but one that we don't seem willing to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Well, with uh, Chris Cole, you wrote an opinion piece in the Courier Journal, July 24, 2019. And you said in part, today American uh, African-American students are more than twice as likely to be referred to law enforcement as white students, while the focus typically falls on African-American boys, African-American girls, or 17% of public school enrollment, but 43% girls arrested. You continue uh, further with while one possible explanation is that some students have behaved worse than others, a mass a massive amount of uh, research confirms that children of different races behave with the same amount. In short, school police un unnecessarily harm the very students many schools already struggle to educate. There is that bill you uh, you mentioned earlier, House Bill 63, that will requ you require. Uh, I mean, let me say this again. There is a bill uh, before the Kentucky State Legislature, House Bill 63, that will require school resource officers, in other words, a police officer with a gun and a badge, on every school campus. Is this the answer to the school safety issue, or are there problems with placing SRO schools in some schools? I don't think SROs are the answer. I think SROs in many instances make um, certain people feel more comfortable, but I don't know that they're necessarily the answer based on the data um, and based on uh, the JCPS's experience with resource officers um, with 
when we had school resource officers, we still had incidents in public schools. There was inc incidents of fights and there were incidents of people bringing weapons into schools that were, they were all, t everything that's happening now happened then. Um, there were some students who felt safe with the presence of SROs. There were other students who did not feel safe. Um, there were SROs who were incredible. Uh, one SRO that I know of that was absolutely phenomenal, his name is Roberto Greider. Um, there were other SROs who did not perform as well, who were actually more of a problem in public schools than they were a, a help. And so uh, I don't think SROs are the solution to our issues concerning school safety. Um, there is no data at all that suggests that SROs are, that SROs make schools safer, um, especially as it relates to gun violence and so forth. It, the data does say uh, you put one more weapon into schools. Um, and many times that weapon is carried by a person that does not have the temperament to deal with the varieties of issues that our kids come to schools with. So, uh, so no, I, I don't think that SROs are the solution. What JCPS is doing currently is um, forming our own security team that we train that is uh, that reports to the superintendent and that will focus on building relationships with uh, the students and the staff and will work collaboratively with uh, JCPS's patrolling force with patrol regions and also with uh, LMPD. We think this is a better approach than hiring police to put in schools because this um, these security uh, and this security team that, that we are developing will uh, be trained by the school system. They'll be trained in de-escalation tactics. They'll be trained in trauma-informed care. They will understand restorative practices. And we think that that indeed make for safer schools. Also, allow me to say about the bill uh, that, that you brought up. One thing that's interesting to me about that bill uh, is that it, it the math doesn't add up. So you can file a bill, you can pass a bill that says every school has to have a sworn police officer in its buildings. But how do you balance that over and against the fact that LMPD has 300 vacancies for sworn police officers? So where are you going to get these sworn police officers from. Yeah. And that's that's where the bill um, to me just becomes ridiculous. I, I think uh, people in Frankfurt clearly don't have anything to do and, and they, they sorely lack any type of political imagination. Um, and I wonder, can they count? Because if LMPD is down 300 and we have over you know 150 school buildings please tell me where are we getting we that means we need about 150 uh police officers here in the city for, uh if we're going to fill all the empty positions at lmpd plus give every school 
a, a sworn officer. We need about 450, right? Uh, if, if my math holds up. So I, I don't I don't understand the perspective from which they come from. I think um, it's rooted in the con the political discourse that is taking place on uh, social media and it's not rooted in reality and it's certainly not rooted in data or best practices. Yeah, I know there's probably a liability uh, issue, but there's there's something I've seen uh, in other school systems, and that is a parent volunteer program called, I think it's called Grandparents in Schools. Is that something that JCPS would consider as having just volunteers come in just to to be available to kids, uh, not to uh, not to uh, you know direct them in any way, but just to be there in case they they feel like they want to talk to somebody just to have that kind of security in the building, knowing there are people there that, that they can talk to, not teachers necessarily, but, you know, people who are and the grandparent kind of figure is one of those things I think that we're, that we're promoting. Yeah, I think uh, that schools certainly embrace volunteers coming in, uh, but I do think that there must be people in buildings who have been trained in trauma informed care. Uh, so many of our students come from backgrounds that that we cannot even imagine. They see things um, that many adults have never seen. And there must be um, there must be some understanding of that, uh, some ability to identify that and to know how to respond in a helpful way. Um, by people who are in buildings. So I do I do think that we need volunteers and that's a great thing. I also think that it's important to train as many people as we can uh, to ensure that they are equipped to uh, to, to, to really um, handle those children in our buildings. Yeah, okay, let's look at something that's uh, on a lot of people's mind now. It's called critical race theory. It's become one of the known, so widely thrown around uh, issues that's uh, flippantly uh, talked about, that it has many interpretations and conflagrations that, that uh, are confusing to a lot of folks. Would you briefly give us some history on this, this concept, the origins and realities, misrepresentation? Yeah, so I think CRT is becoming uh, grossly misrepresented in our body, body politic at the moment. Our political conversation has a tendency to um, to really misrepresent and exacerbate um, uh, disagreements with certain lines of thinking, such as we talked about earlier in the conversation around uh, Jeremiah Wright and that one sermon uh, in 2000 uh, uh, that, that had been preached uh, some, some time earlier. And um, we understand that, you know, they, the news media really took a maybe a 30 second clip uh, of that and put it in a loop and just continued to repeat that without any context. And it made sort of a boogeyman um, in the American political discourse. CRT is being treated the same way. We're not really understanding what CRT is or why it was developed. Um, CRT is the new boogeyman that white conservatives are lifting up um, 
really to continue the, the Trump regime uh, and to, uh, to have an ideological target to shoot at. Critical race theory um, was really formulated, was really, it, it was formulated in um, early to mid 20th century by legal scholars such as Charles Hamilton Houston um, uh, and Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Marshall, of course, went on to become um, a Supreme Court justice, uh, but Thurgood Marshall became a Supreme Court justice because of his exemplary career with the NAACP filing legislation and win, not, not filing legislation, filing court cases and winning court cases um, concerning uh, separate but equal uh, schools, uh, concerning um, how the, the law systemically uh, negatively impacted black people. Uh, his famous case, I guess, was uh, the Brown versus Board of Education uh, case in 1954, 55, and how that set in motion uh, integration in public schools. There was an understudy um, of Thurgood Marshall, uh, whose name was Derek Bale. And Derek Bale um, went on to be a professor at Harvard, a phenomenal legal scholar in his own right. And Derek Bale pretty much wrote the book on critical race theory. I believe it was in the 1970s. And that's where uh, it formally uh, became a part of, of um, legal studies and um, the coursework for, for budding attorneys. Um, and all critical race theory does is ask how does the law impact people um, who are a part of certain racial groups? In what ways um, does the law, you know, um, um, undermine justice for certain groups of people based along the lines of race? That's all it does. Uh, why this is controversial, I have no idea. Uh, why are people saying that we teach critical race theory in public schools? I have no idea. Um, I am certain that we don't teach critical race theory in K through 12, um, unless you take a political science course in undergrad, you probably will never, um, stumble upon critical race theory. And unless you go to law school, you probably can make it through, um, whatever your, you know, master's degree program is uh, without coming into contact with, with critical race theory. It, it is a part of legal studies. So um, yeah, <laughs> that's that's kind of kind of my thoughts on critical race theory. I actually have been reading up on it uh, over the past 
two years, and I think it's quite fascinating. I think um, the legal scholarship that is done centering critical race theory is very important um, for the flourishing of the United States of America and really making it a more just nation. Um, I think Nicole Hannah-Jones' 1619 project, which which was the pre, so we, we started at the 1619 project and that's when Trump said something about uh, critical race theory and it's been downhill ever since then. But uh, the 1619 project, which is also massively uh, controversial, and I can't quite figure out why it's controversial, because it just simply makes the case that um, that the American empire did not start in 1776 uh, with the American Revolutionary War, but in fact, it started in 1619, August to be exact, when um, uh, uh, about 20 uh, Africans got off of a slave ship in Virginia, um, starting this process of chattel slavery where men and women were ripped from Africa and uh, were enslaved in the United States of America. Um, why that's a controversial notion, I, I don't understand, I don't know. But um, unfortunately, we're having just a very unintelligent conversation about CRT currently in contemporary American discourse. Yeah, so uh, critical race theory, uh, your position is very similar to uh, law professor, University of Liberal Law Professor Cedric Powell, who, who claims that, that this, this is an institutional issue and it's not taught in public schools. So, it, but it's become a wedge issue because uh, the Republicans know that they can uh, bring out their base uh, when they are uh, accusing school systems of uh, teaching critical race theory, which they, they do not do. So at this point, it, it looks like that the re Republicans in the Kentucky State Legislature intend to pass SB 138. This bill, and ex as explained by the academics like University of Louisville uh, Law Professor Cedric Powell, the Murray State historian Brian Clarity, University of Kentucky philosopher professor Arnold Farr will impede the teaching of African-American, Native American history, as well as, as the teaching of the LBGDQ and women's rights movement. SB 138 becomes law, if it does, it will direct public school teachers to post speeches by Ronald Reagan and other famous Americans. What do you see as Talk. Uh, what do you see as the uh, top implications of SB 138 for Kentucky schools? Will you ask me that question one more time? What do you see uh, for the implications of 138 as it affects Jefferson County Public Schools and Kentucky schools? Well, I think it can um, intimidate certain uh, teachers to not um, present their their students with certain um, with certain information. Um, as I said earlier, you know, there's a conversation about CRT, and all CRT is, um, you know, just the study of how race and 
the law intersect. Um, and, you know, I think the ironic thing about the bill that you just mentioned is some of the readings that uh, they are demanding be read in public schools, you can't help but really interrogate the intersection of race and law. They're decoding CRT really into their bills by having to read, for instance, Reagan's speech. Well, you can't read Reagan's speech um, without asking questions about race. You can't read Reagan's speech without asking questions about economics. You can't read Reagan's speech without asking questions about gender and about that particular cultural epoch. Um, so, you know, you can, you can tell that the people who are uh, drawing up these laws are not historians and they're not, they're not students of history, that they probably haven't even read much of what they are putting into these bills because if they did, uh, they would understand that the questions that are raised by by these um, by these readings uh, will lead people right to CRT. It won't prevent them from experiencing it because all CRT is it is simply the study of how race and law intersect. And Reagan is a great, great, great case study on the ways that race and law intersect, on the way that race and economics intersect. Um, much of what we heard uh, from the Trump administration was really warmed over from the Reagan administration. Um, and, you know, it was just kind of juiced up for um, a, a base in the 20 in the 21st century. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't really new, new stuff. And so I think it's laughable. Uh, I don't know what all of the complications or implications will be. My hunch is that um, people will find a way to have the conversations that they feel are necessary to have. And um, I think our lawmakers should understand now, though, that there is a little thing called Google. And uh, most of most kids these days have phones and they have smart pads where they have access to Google. And even in some school buildings, there is access to Google. And kids can ask Google whatever they want to ask Google. And the truth has a way of getting out. And so maybe they should spend time ensuring that our public education teachers have uh, the freedom to foster uh, the conversations that are necessary for uh, the educational process. Okay, I think we go to Eugene. Okay, for, uh, from a March 20th, 2022 New York Times editorial uh, titled Free Speech Under Threat, we find this statement, for all the tolerance and enlightenment that modern society claims, 
Americans are losing hold of a fundamental right as citizens for a free country, the right to speak their minds and voice their opinions in public without fear of being shamed or shunned. According to Suzanne Nossel, the chief executive of PEN, P-E-N, America, a free speech organization, there is a crisis around the freedom of speech now because many people don't understand it. They weren't taught why it matters, that is to say why and how the right to speak matters. Uh, what do you think? It, 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 what do you think it's important? I'm sorry, let me say this again. What do you think is it is about freedom of speech that people don't understand? How does not understanding the importance of freedom of speech matter? What should public schools be teaching about freedom of speech that uh, that they're not teaching? I think that what our entire society doesn't understand is that freedom of speech does not mean that you can say whatever you want to say without consequences or at the very least without responses. There are those who feel that being respectful in the public square is in some ways limiting their freedom of speech, but it is not. You, just because there is the freedom of speech does not mean that you can use racial slurs. It does not mean that you can speak derog in, in derogatory ways about the LGBTQ community. It does not mean that you can be uncivil in your it means that you have a right to say what is on your mind, um, but it is also equally as important to be respectful to those who you may have stark disagreement with. Okay, so yeah, uh, back to these bills that are that have been filed by Republicans in state legislature. HB 14, HB 18, SB 138, HB 487, uh, they're designed to prohibit public and parochial school teachers from teaching certain histories and direct them to teach certain histories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like uh, the chairman of the University of Louisville Pan-African Studies Department, Dr. Ricky Jones, viewed these bills as censorship on part of the state. How do you see these? I, I agree with uh, Dr. Jones. They are the attempt at censorship. Um, now, I think the other other part of this is you already have a teacher crisis, a teacher shortage. They are exacerbating the teacher shortage by placing teachers. I mean, they are treating teachers as though teachers are not professionals, as though teachers have not been trained as to how to foster conversation in their classrooms and how to present two competing ideas and uh, help students develop the critical thinking skills that they need to be successful citizens. Uh, I think it's the attempt at censorship, but I don't think you can censor uh, these things um, entirely. I, I think that conversations still happen. I think that um, there are ways um to to 
to bring into classroom conversations other ideas that may be competing. And again, these bills are presented in ways that would suggest students have no agency, no agency to do research for themselves, no agency to ask basic questions. Uh, I, I think you have to, uh, so they, they make some grave assumptions about the intellectual capacities of our students. Um, apparently, many of our legislators are committed to the banking concept of education where students are simply um, empty vessels and the teacher is just pouring information into them and they're just supposed to hold that information. Um, and they miss the central pedagogical process of conversation, of questions and answers, of pushback, of disagreement, of interrogation of ideas. And even with their attempts at censorship, there will still be questions raised. There will, and when those questions are raised, teachers will have to give some type of answer. And maybe the teacher will simply answer by saying, Google it. But even saying Google it will lead some students to be uh, presented with the, a fuller picture than what um, the legislation that has been filed would have them to see. Okay, so let's talk about another bill here. Senate Bill 1 is designed to remove the authority from school site-based decision-making councils and place that authority in the hands of superintendents. For example, SBDM uh, is no longer will have the authority to choose the school principal. SBDM councils were established in 1990 as part of the Kentucky Education Reform Act. So SBDMs were designed to give teachers and parents a voice in terms of how local schools are run. What are your thoughts about taking away much of the authority of the SBDM councils and placing that authority in the hands of superintendents? I think we get into very um, dangerous territory began to take authority out of the hands of of uh, citizens, and um, I, I I find I'm totally comfortable with our superintendent, Dr. Molly Polio, uh, but I recognize also that Dr. Polio will not be the superintendent forever, and uh, I think that schools as community treasures should be stewarded by people who live in those communities, by parents and teachers who are at those school buildings every single day. And I think what SB1 does is really take power um, from parents and teachers in ways that may prove problematic down the line. Okay. All right, as uh, the March 27th, 2022 Courier-Journal article, Will Promises Be Broken by Chris Keenig states the Jefferson County Public School System is scheduled to make fundamental changes in the student assignment plan. Getting explains that the burden of for school integration has for decades been placed on the backs of African-American students because they are the ones that have been bused from their neighborhoods in Louisville to uh, Louisville's West End to mostly white schools in the suburbs. These bus rides 
take could take up to an hour or more each each way. Kids are asked to get up earlier and stay later, uh, get going to and coming from school. Now Superintendent Marty Polio and the JCPS school board has decided to give West End students the choice. African-American students can either continue to take the long bus ride to mostly white suburban schools, or they can attend their uh, reside school in their neighborhood. Tell us what the changes in the bus pattern will mean and, and how many students will be affected. What are the pros and cons in the changes to busing? I think that um, the, well, the, the busing patterns will decrease from more than 90 to somewhere around 23, which I think is a positive change. I do think that the student assignment plan is moving in the right direction with um, dual resides. Uh, I do think it must be acknowledged that dual resides, um, well, really, I, I think the student assignment plan, let me take this, is, is moving in the right direction. There is dual resides, there will be a centralized lottery that will, for the magnet school programs. There will be more magnet programs for people to choose from. Um, I, uh, there will be feeder patterns created, and uh, those feeder pa patterns will lend itself to predictability, where if your child goes to a certain elementary school, you know where that child will go to middle school and to high school. Uh, which I think is a positive spotlight. Uh, so I think that the student assignment plan is moving in, the, in a positive direction. Um, I do think, though, it should be acknowledged that this plan is corrective. It's not necessarily innovative. The 1984 student assignment plan was created to benefit white East End families. Uh, it was never designed to have a positive impact on black kids. Black kids were not a thought in the 1984 um, student assignment plan, which was wrong. Uh, it was wrong to say the black kids were the ones who would be bused um, to, to the East End in order to achieve diversity. And people in the East End, children in the East End could stay close to their homes. Uh, and so what we see with this current plan, it's really a righting wrongs that have been a part of our school district for the last 40 years. Um, how will this impact black children? I think it will give some families choice. I do think that there needs to be an increased focus on what kind of choice these parents will have. Uh, will it be a choice between two Title I schools? Is it simply a choice where your child can stay close to home or your child can be bused across town, but you don't have any um, authority over where particularly your child goes close to home or where particularly your child goes if they are bused across town. I think there needs to be uh, some further refining of what that choice looks like for individual parents. I would like to know more about the capacity of schools to uh, receive children and how that's going to work uh, in the district because I don't want us to tell people that they'll have choice and then they discover that they really don't have um, as many choices as as they thought. Okay, but if black students choose to attend their reside schools, won't those choices resegregate the Jefferson County public school system? So diversity is sacrifice so that the majority of African-American students can attend a school close to their home? Uh, well, diversity has already been sacrificed. 
Uh, schools are already segregated. I think that that's a part of the problem of the plan as, as it has been presented. White families in the East End are not impacted by this plan. They are not obligated to participate in diversifying schools within the district. This plan, the current plan that, that we're under and the proposed plan both prioritizes the comfort of white East End families. That's why we're not hearing more conversation about the student assignment plan because it really doesn't impact um, kids in the East End. It only impacts kids in the West End. Um, and so when you talk about resegregating schools, they're already, re they're already segregated because white kids do not come out of the East End unless they're going to Mail, Manual, Brandeis, Brown, No. Um, otherwise, they stay in their communities. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I think that that process of segregation will continue to remain intact, unfortunately. So will that process of, of segregation, um, is that going to, uh, it's just, I don't know how to say this, but diversity is being sacrificed here. And you're saying it, it's, it's already happened. We, we don't have diversity uh, under the current system because East End school uh, students are not bused into the West End schools. Uh, but won't this contribute, this new plan contribute to that segregation? I think it will. I think it will. Uh, and also, it will contribute to concentrating poverty uh, at even greater levels. So will it be worth it for African-American kids to go back to their reside schools? Are they going to gain more than they lose from being busted to schools in the suburbs? Well, if if a family is is interested in um, ease of access, then it may be worth it. If a child's ability to participate in extracurricular activities is increased by their going to a school closer to home, then it may benefit them. I think one thing that we've got to build into this plan is a student achievement component. If there is no focus on student achievement, if the achievement gap continues to widen, it does not matter whether you send your child close to home or far away from home. I think what we have to do is focus on wherever these children go to school, how are we going to ensure that learning happens? How are we going to ensure that our children excel, that all children excel, particularly that black children excel? White children in this community are doing fine. Uh, it's black children, it's Latinx children, it's immigrant children, it is poor children, poor white kids in Portland who stand um, who are not achieving in in ways that we would like to see in our schools. 
I think that is where our, our attention and our focus has to be. I think giving people choice is good, but let's be clear, they should have had choice in, in, 18, in 1984. Um, so we're giving people something that they should have already had. What the bulk of the attention, I believe, has to be focused around is student achievement. Location is wonderful but learning has to happen. Okay, so let's talk about those uh, persistent standard test score gap that uh, you just mentioned uh, between mostly middle class and uh, white families that are middle class and mostly black families that come from working class families, students that come from working class families. What's the plan? What's the JCPS plan for improving the standardized test scores for African-American students? You know, I'm still at, I'm asking the same question. I've I've been asking the same question, and I'm getting on people's nerves asking the question. But I'm I'm really uh, curious on what what is the plan? What is the plan uh, for improving student achievement and per, and for improving Black student achievement in particular? It is possible in this district to have a child who makes straight A's on their report card, but is not scoring on grade level on their MAP test. Most parents are trained to look at their report card, at the grades on the report card. So if yeah. you have a kid who brings home all A's, you throw a party. If you have a kid who has all A and B's, you go out and get pizza. If you have a kid who gets A, B's and C's, you say, all right, Johnny, you got to do better this time. But it's, it's, it's not a huge ordeal. Good grades on a report card is fine, but that does not reveal the total picture of student achievement. The MAP scores are what indicates for parents and teachers where a student's proficiency is and for too many black kids they are not performing on grade level and they're definitely definitely not performing above grade level and i think we are becoming too used to this um to these scores to this reality and i don't i don't know that we are taking it as an urgent call to do something radically different. I think that there needs to be some alignment between classroom work and um, and the map testing. Um, you know, if my kid is getting A's in math on their report card, then why why are they below grade level on on the map test? Um, how do we bring that into alignment? Um, their, you know, standards-based grading is very controversial here in the district. But if you don't grade children based on the standards, I'm not sure that we'll ever get the outcomes that we want. Um, and I'm not certain that we'll ever really close the achievement gap. And so I think that the, the district has to develop some robust plans for closing the achievement gap and ensuring that black kids excel academically. 
Yeah, map testing that occurs what eighth grade? When else? Not oh, every it occurs um, as early as the third grade, um, and maybe earlier. Well, no, I'm I'm wrong. Uh, map testing occurs. Well, let me say it like this. My daughter is in the first grade and she does map testing. Okay. Okay. So but it at least starts in first grade. Yeah. So, but here's my question here standardized test score gap. I, I wonder if the test itself is not an issue here. Well, um, it, the test may be an issue. And I, I fully understand those who have issue with standardized tests, but as of today, we are measuring students based on standardized tests. I do believe that some work needs to be done around standardized tests that maybe we need to change uh, our, our our approaches to standardized tests, or maybe we need to just do away with the usage of standardized tests altogether. But until we do that, I want my children to excel on the standardized test. Does okay. that Let me finish that question, Corey, Corey uh, Shul. I have uh, half a master's degree in history, American history from, from U of L. I thought I was pretty up to date on the African-American history until I took Ricky Jones's test on African-American history. I failed miserably, uh, as did, as did uh, Joe Garth, a Courage Journal reporter. Mm -hmm. So that tells us that that history, African-American history, is not being taught in our public schools. And mm -hmm. if I'm an African-American student, I'm bused from Shawnee Park to Ballard High School and I found out, well, 85% of the students here in Shawnee are, are white, 90% uh, of the teachers are white, and I'm not even, they're not even teaching my history here. So why is, is a matter African-American, what incentive, what incentive does, does an African-American student have to perform well on a standardized test that doesn't include questions about his or her history? I think I think that's a very valid question. Um, but when we talk about the map test in JCPS, we're talking about reading and math. That that's what comprises the map test. It doesn't include some of those other studies, especially in elementary grades and in middle school grades. And when parents um go in for their parent teacher conferences they're presented with map scores that deal with math and reading and so when we talk about closing the achievement gap when i speak about developing a robust plan to ensure that there is alignment between classwork and um the testing i'm talking about math and reading Okay. When we get into other, other, you know, the ACT and the SAT, that's when history and some of these other um, disciplines come in. But what we're dealing with in, in JCPS as it relates to MAP scores, which is how 
we measure where a child is academically, that is math and reading. And when we talk about the achievement gap, we're talking about where white kids score in math and reading and where black kids score in math and reading. Okay, fair enough. Let's go back to uh, the national issue. Democrats seem to be losing the school wars, according to Jennifer Berkshire and, and Jack Schneider, and authors of an uh, article in the New York Times uh, titled, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, the Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. An article, March 26, uh, 2022. They write about Republicans have, uh, how they've taken advantage of mass requirements, parents' rights, race studies of CRT. Uh, they claim that Democrats should realize their main focus for decades of education being the key to solving economic challenges. Americans need an overhaul with the prohibitive cost of college and the fewer advantages of degree. The middle class is falling behind the wealthy as usual and are tired of being uh, finally told higher education is the only way to success. How do you respond to this indictment of Democrats and liberals in, in general about their focus on education and uh, where it should go? Well, I do think the Democrats are losing the war in many ways um, on public education. I, I think that the prohibitive cost of higher education is disheartening and it's something that I think um, the political establishment has to do something about immediately. I think it's something that President Biden can really uh, do something about. I think it's important because the life of the mind is worthy of investment, especially as a nation looks at its history. We don't I, I think it's problematic to frame higher education as simply a pathway for people to get a job. Higher education ought to be encouraged as a way of helping people explore uh, their own intellectualism, of helping them to be exposed to the world of ideas. And I think, unfortunately, we have whittled down uh, education to very pragmatic means. And I think that's unhelpful to a nation that hopes to perpetuate itself. Because when people are thinking people, they create things, they develop, um, they develop innovations and, and they create things that benefit the whole of society. And I, I believe that we ought to be encouraging well, yeah, something uh, that I think, well, concerns me is that in the 70s, the late 70s, the Jefferson County began to dismantle the, the uh, programs for uh, professions in public schools, like uh, plumbing, nursing, uh, those kinds of things that you don't have necessarily have to have a college degree, but a lot of people can, uh, can use those, and we need those professions, uh, all of us. Uh, yeah. We need plumbers, you know, we need uh, people who can build houses. Uh, we need contractors, uh, we need carpenters. Those things can be taught in uh, high schools and 
I don't know why those were taken out. I know they were partially put into other schools, but the trade schools were eliminated. That would be one thing I think the president could do is to put funds into those kinds of uh, educational programs that don't require a college degree. What do you think? I know one thing that we uh, have here in Jefferson County Public Schools is the Academies of Louisville, which uh, we do have pathways um, for people who aspire to be plumbers and uh, there they can uh, get their licenses and even they can be partnered with employers. Um, we have, I think over 120 industry partners uh, here, they're partnered with public schools. And so I'd love to go to more high school. And maybe if you all would like sometime, I could show you more high school and how their academies are just absolutely phenomenal. And they have them in a variety of, um, in a variety of career paths. Um, when you go to um, Central, they have a great nursing career path there. Uh, so that is something that we include in our in our schools here in, in Louisville. Okay, Jamie, we're we're 20 minutes over our deal. Okay, I want to skip those. Okay, so we need to. Where do you want to go? Okay, so um, let's. So you want to ask this? Let's let's ask this last question. Here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Corey, we are at the end of our program. We have just a few minutes left. Was uh, there other uh, thoughts that you'd like to share with our our listeners? Support public education. Support public education. Teachers and administrators. Truly, public education is the foundation to a, not only a great city, but um, it is an investment in our tomorrow. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. Jefferson County Board of Education member Corey Scholl has been our guest today. We wanna to thank you, Corey. It's been a pleasure to have you join us today with uh, Solutions to Violence. My joy, thank you. Solutions to Violence program airs on Monday at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Our interview featuring Corey Scholl airs again April 5th and 6th. To listen live, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Listen Live Now. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Corey Scholl will be placed in the WFMP archives Wednesday, April 6th for your listening pleasure. To visit our archives, to visit our archives, go to the website forwardradio.org, choose program archives, and it's uh, the Solution to Balance program that features Jefferson County Board of Education member Corey Shaw. For more information and a schedule of programming that will surprise and delight you, challenge, uh, challenge you, visit us at forwardradio.org. You'll find a wealth of offerings from the broadcast schedule. Uh, it's so we want to uh, uh, we'd love to hear from you once again I'm Jim Johnson my co-host is Jamie McMillan we are your host for Solutions Violence our, our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson thank you for joining us in our ex